It's Thursday, April 23rd. I'm Oscar Ramirez in Los Angeles, and this is The Daily Dive. Another major meat processing plant has closed due to coronavirus. Tyson Foods has had to close down its Waterloo, Iowa pork processing plant just as it's reopening another facility in Columbus Junction that closed down on April 6th. The plant will be closed indefinitely as they clean, install infrared body temperature scanners, and plexiglass barriers to protect workers. Tyler Jett, Jobs and Economy reporter for the Des Moines Register, joins us for more. Next, one of the key marks that states must achieve to be able to safely reopen their economies is ramped up testing. Being able to test and trace workers is essential to containing the spread of the virus, but expanding the capacity to test has been difficult because of supply shortages and backlogs. One main shortage important to being able to administer the test is a lack of swabs. Chris Weaver, reporter for the Wall Street Journal, joins us for why it's been so difficult to get testing right. Finally, the Air Force's Flying Hospital Pods has had its first mission, pulling COVID-19 patients out of Afghanistan and into Germany for treatment. They allow for moving people who are infected with the contagion without giving it to anyone else on the plane or contaminating the aircraft itself. Rob Verger, associate editor at Popular Science, joins us for what we know about this TIS system. It's news without the noise. Let's dive in. We're working with the facilities to make sure that they're taking all precautions that they should to protect their workforce, mask, face shields, sanitizing the place. They do this and have done this on a daily basis. That's standard practice. Joining us now is Tyler Jett, jobs and economy reporter at the Des Moines Register. Thanks for joining us, Tyler. Yeah, no problem. We wanted to talk about Tyson Foods. There's another pork processing plant that has closed. This is in Waterloo, Iowa. It's one of the largest pork processing plants that Tyson Foods operates. This is coming just as one of their other facilities in Columbus Junction just reopened. That one had originally closed on April 6th. So there's a lot of concern going around about meat processing plants in general. There's a few other ones throughout the country that have already closed, and experts fear that these could be the next big hotspots. Tyler, tell us about the Columbus Junction facility and the Waterloo facility. What's going on with Tyson Foods? So the Columbus Junction facility closed on April 6th. They're both pork processing plants. The facility in Columbus Junction is smaller. It employs about 1,200 people. Some employees began to start missing work. Some employees began to leave because they had virus. And eventually, they started doing a lot more testing in that area. They found a number of people tested positive. Now, the most recent figure from yesterday, the state reported about 250 people in that county had tested positive for the virus. And that's a, it's a very small county. It's about 10,000 people in the whole county. And I think there had been two deaths in that county. And largely, a lot of it has been centered on that Tyson plant there in Columbus Junction. And then the Waterloo plant is much larger, but it's also a pork processing facility. It has about 2,800 employees. I think the National Pork Council said it's responsible for about 4% of all pork processing in the country. So now that the Columbus Junction one has reopened, what have they put in there to protect the workers? I read from your story, they have infrared scanners and a lot of plexiglass everywhere. I was down in Columbus Junction for a couple of days this week and just I met with probably about a dozen employees, as well as a lot of city officials and other people 
who are connected to the plant. And talking to the mayor who came into the plant the day before on Monday, the day before they opened up again, that the company took him on a tour. He said that they put in these infrared scanners, they put in plexiglass stations so that workers are supposed to be in between this plexiglass so they don't touch each other. And they have masks available and they've got hand sanitizer and all kinds of sanitizer available for the workers. And they resumed work on Tuesday with slaughtering operation. And today they were going to get into the actual processing of the pigs. And we talk about supply chain a lot of times. It's not just will consumers be able to get their meat and all this is affects everybody, farmers, truckers, distributors, the grocers, the supply chain disruptions when these meat processing plants close down could be pretty big, but we're being told that there's no worry just yet. It's one of the situations where we're in the middle of it, and so it's hard to say what we're going to be looking at long term. I know that last week the, the National Pork Producers Council was, was holding a, a, a teleconference, and they were using words like potential disaster and, and things like that. An agriculture economist at Iowa State, who I spoke with last week, said he believed that these farmers could hold on to their pigs on their farm for maybe two weeks at that point, maybe three weeks, maybe four weeks. They could try to be creative, but at a certain point, you would start killing your pigs. Basically, you could not afford to keep them, and that would be a loss. One farmer I talked to, who's a hog farmer, he says he sells about 600 pigs a week, and sort of on the other end of it, about 600 pigs are being born there every week. And he said that he gave that same estimate two to three to four weeks. He said, you know, maybe you can get some tents, things like that, move some pigs into some other areas to hold on to them. But you can only do that for so long before you need to start euthanizing them. I think Tyson wants to buy these pigs at about 280, 285 pounds. But these pigs grow very fast. And if they're at 300 pounds or more, they become too hard to handle and these plants are not going to take them. When the Columbus Junction plant closed down, that's a plant that he supplies pigs to. He said Tyson kind of spread the pain out a little bit and that they started taking some of his pigs to other plants like in Perry, Iowa, or also in Waterloo, I believe, at the time. This is before the Waterloo plant closed. And he said other farmers who normally supplied at those other plants were getting kind of cut back. Tyson wasn't taking as much from them. So kind of everybody was sort of suffering equally, or at least that was the idea at the time. Tyler Jett, Jobs and Economy Reporter at the Des Moines Register. Thank you very much for joining us. Thank you. A lot of things going into it and they're coming from a lot of different places. And when any part of that supply chain breaks down, it can basically render a lab you know, useless, unable to, to do the test and deliver results. And it all starts with swabs, which is, I don't know if it's the most important bottleneck, but it's the first one. Joining us now is Chris Weaver, reporter at the Wall Street Journal. Thanks for joining us, Chris. Yeah, my pleasure. I wanted to talk about testing in the country for coronavirus. As I've been saying a lot on the podcast, it's all about the testing right now. It's what a lot of people expect we will need to get back to the workforce to open up the economy again. We need this fast and widespread testing as a key requirement for all of this. But just as much as we've heard that, we've heard the flip side of that. 
there's supply shortages, testing backlogs, unreliable tests. There's a lot of stuff that still needs to be worked on on this front. So, Chris, tell us a little bit about it. How has testing been hampered by all of this? This has been a saga for more than a month now. And in the last week or two, I'd say we've been hearing two very different messages in our reporting. You know, one is coming from the administration where uh, officials are increasingly confident that testing capacity has reached the point that at least within the federal government, they think is where it needs to be to begin slowly reopening some pockets of the country. But when we speak to people in the lab industry, they tell us things like the reality on the ground does not comport with the messaging. And what they're seeing is that they can't get basic supplies needed to keep up with demand for tests, you know, even in their communities. And You know, from dozens of interviews, I can tell you that that stretches both from hard-hit areas like New York and its suburbs and Seattle, Washington, as well as places that haven't had huge outbreaks like St. Louis or Salt Lake City, Utah. So what are these testing supplies shortages looking like? I mean, it's a lot of supply chain stuff because there's so much that goes into an individual test. Any one little thing that falls into short supply could throw off the entire thing. So swabs, we're hearing a lot about swabs and how there's a big lack of those. The test for coronavirus, the kind of test that, we're, that labs are using to detect the active presence of the virus, right, an infected person, it's not like a discrete item. Instead, it's a process that involves a lot of different materials from all kinds of different suppliers, a bunch of different chemicals, not just what's called the test kit itself, which are the chemicals that detect the virus, but a whole other set of products that just basically just to prepare the specimen or sort of facilitate the process of the test. So there's a lot of things going into it, and they're coming from a lot of different places. And when any part of that supply chain breaks down, it can basically render a lab you know, useless, unable to, to do the test and deliver results. And it all starts with swabs, which is I don't know if it's the most important bottleneck, but it's the first one. And we've been hearing from people in, you know, one lab director, for instance, told me that he's got the capacity to do a thousand tests a day. But when we talked last week, he only had 300 swabs in stock. He had no idea when he was going to get more. So we had to ration those out, basically, and pick who gets tested and who doesn't. And that's the reality that he's living with at a health system in the uh, St. Louis area that has seven hospitals. It's a big portion of the that city's uh, you know, healthcare economy. I think that example stood out to me, and I made a note of that, too. It could be a different lab, but this is kind of a similar story. The lab ordered $13,000 worth of swabs on March 13th, and the order won't get filled until May 18th. That's two months in a delay yeah, yeah, in getting yeah, the swabs. That's a different lab. And to, to be clear, that's not to say that lab doesn't have any swabs right now. It's just right. that People are shopping around, trying to place orders with suppliers they've never worked with before. And many of the suppliers that they've relied on for years, for swabs in particular, are just not able to keep up with demand. And part of the reason is that the company that made about 80% of the U.S. supply of swabs historically is an Italian company called Copan Diagnostics in northern Italy. And they, of course, have been hard hit by the pandemic as well. From the lab people's point of view, you know, just as important as the shortage of masks and gowns and things like that. And the government was, for whatever reason, less sort of ready to step into the fray on that. And yesterday, President Trump said that he would invoke the Defense Production Act to force the production of more swabs in the United States. This is a, a Korean War era law that allows the federal government to make factories, make stuff that are needed in emergencies. But the shortage has been going on since the very beginning of March. And 
it's been a just a constant problem. So far, the U.S. has tested about 3.7 million people. That's 1% of the population. I think it was administration officials said that testing through April will only meet about half of the capacity that is needed. So I wanted to ask a little bit about this new test, this Abbott lab test, the one that the president was touting for a while, too. It could give us results in a few minutes. There was also big delays with that one in one crucial piece, which is this single-use cartridges that that specific thing uses. And that fell into short supply almost immediately. So that's an interesting story. This is one of the sort of corners of the lab world where the feds really did make a big push to try to facilitate you know, local testing capacity. What they did is they bought thousands of these machines from Abbott Laboratories. Abbott's a you know, big manufacturer of a variety of different lab platforms, including at least two that are already in use for genetic testing for coronavirus. What they bought were they're called point of care testing devices, and you know you see them in, for instance, kind of like the back office at doctors' offices and things like that. And I distributed 15 each to the states, more for the U.S. Indian Health Service, and still more for some other destinations in the apparatus of the government. And almost immediately, the states found that even though they got between 100 and 150 uh, single-use cartridges that you kind of put into the machines along with the sample to, do, to run the test, they couldn't get any more. And that 150 was really just enough to basically, you know, what is called in lab parlance, validate the devices. You have to run some tests before you start running real human patient samples to make sure the machine is working properly. So they basically were caught in the situation where even as they got the machines in early April, where they couldn't get the materials needed to start testing real people. And officials in Oklahoma, for instance, told us that about a week and a half ago, they had managed to place an order. But as of Sunday, they still hadn't actually gotten any yet. So it's been a protracted delay. And this is something that the government had imbued with a really high profile when President Trump unpacked the device on a wooden table in the Rose Garden. I remember that, yeah. Yeah, yeah. The box blew off the table (laughs) in the wind. (laughs) Chris Weaver, reporter at the Wall Street Journal. Thank you very much for joining us. Oh, my pleasure. Thanks for having me. There was three COVID-19 patients. They were flown out of Afghanistan. They were government contractors, and the Air Force flew this modular system inside a giant cargo plane, a C-17, on April 10th. Joining us now is Rob Verger, Associate Editor at Popular Science. Thanks for joining us, Rob. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. I wanted to talk about an interesting little story out of this whole coronavirus thing. The Air Force has these flying hospital pods that were originally made when the Ebola crisis was happening, and they just actually had their first mission pulling some COVID-19 patients out of Afghanistan and transporting them to Germany. But it's just an interesting little system that they have here. Who knows how much use it'll get. But Rob, tell us a little bit about what these little flying hospital pods are. They're not so little, actually, and how they were used. It's called the Transport Isolation System, and it's actually a series of modules. There's two isolation modules and one antechamber module, which is kind of like an airlock or the mudroom in your house where Anybody going in to care for the patients has to pass through the antechamber module on their way out or their way in. It's kind of a a way for them to make sure that nothing gets contaminated. As you mentioned, there was three COVID-19 patients. They were flown out of Afghanistan. They were government contractors, and the Air Force flew this modular system inside a giant cargo plane, a C-17, on April 10th. 
Do we have any sense that this will be used a lot more frequently? And tell us a little bit about kind of where they got started, because they've been around for a few years now. As I mentioned, they kind of unveiled these during the Ebola crisis in 2014. So the Air Force first started working on this system in 2014 in response to the Ebola crisis. It was really first kind of unveiled in 2015. And then it was never used operationally during that time or after until right now when they decided to use it for these COVID patients. So it was a system they developed and then for years it wasn't used and now it's finally been used in this context. And they transported these patients out of Afghanistan. And it's really a way to make sure that the patients can get the care they need en route so that doctors or nurses or other providers can go in and and care for them, but without exposing the other folks on the plane or the airplane itself to any pathogens. So it really has a long history, and we're now just seeing the Air Force using it for the first time officially really quite recently. Tell us a little bit more about the systems, because they're made to mimic pretty much different levels of care that you'd find in a hospital. So everything from basic needs to ICU level needs that they can use on these things. The modules can hold in total somewhere between two or four patients. But as you mentioned, how sick they are really determines the level of care they get. So they may be on litters in kind of a critical care situation and arrive at the aircraft already packaged, you know, as healthcare providers say, with things like ventilators. So they may be in that situation or they may be more ambulatory in the sense that they can walk in and out by themselves, but they have to go into these modules so as not to infect others. And then once they're on the plane, the crew with the transport isolation system has a lot of gear at their disposal to tend to them, you know, whether it's a very minor case or something more serious. They really have a lot of options. And so, as you said, it does mimic a hospital in terms of they can provide the care that you might get if you're just on the floor of a hospital, but not in an ICU. Or if someone's in more, a much more critical situation, then they could get ICU level care in these pods. You know, these pods really seem like it could be used for a high level VIP or something like the Ebola crisis that is highly transmissible and really dangerous. Do we have a sense of what happened with these contractors specifically that they needed to be taken out and moved to Germany? The Air Force hasn't told me too much about who the contractors were, besides the fact that they were indeed contractors for the U.S. government. And they did obviously, you know, make the decision to transport them out of Afghanistan. And uh, I spoke with a nurse in the Air Force who was involved in some of the training. And she mentioned, you know, generally in situations like this, the goal is to treat somebody where they are. So my hunch is that they decided to move these folks out of Afghanistan so that they could get access to a higher level of care in Germany. We mentioned this kind of originated in 2014. Are they working on any new type of updated versions of these things? There's a new system that's kind of in the works called the Portable Biocontainment Module, or PBCM, and that's the most modern system, and the Air Force is currently working on it, and it's more the size of like a shipping container, as opposed to these modules, which are each about the size of just a cargo pallet that might go into the belly of an aircraft. So the new system they're working on is bigger. It could hold about twice as many people. But I also understand that it's currently in testing and it hasn't been certified yet for official use. So we could see the Air Force turning to a new system eventually or alternate systems, or they could continue to use this existing transport isolation system, which now dates about five or six years old, but is now kind of doing the job that they need it to in the, in the current moment. Rob Berger, Associate Editor at Popular Science. Thank you very much for joining us. My pleasure. Thank you so much. That's it for today. Join us on social media at Daily Dive Pod on both Twitter and Instagram. Leave us a comment, give us a rating, and tell us the stories that you're interested in. 
follow us on iHeartRadio, or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. This episode of The Daily Dive is produced by Victor Wright and engineered by Tony Sorrentino. I'm Oscar Ramirez, and this was your Daily Dive.